0: Just do something. There we go. Just do something. Uh Michael, i okay, oh, hold on. This is really cool if I put the microphone on my ear, it works really good. Just do something when the microphone doesn't work. All right, very good. All right, welcome today. We are glad that you are here. Uh, We're thankful to our choir, Um, and if you have a new mental image about heaven and flossing, I hope that that's appropriate for you guys. That'll be an exciting day. Whatever the dance may be, we dance before the Lord. That'll be a good thing. So um, we're thankful you're here, and uh, if you're a guest with us, especially today, we're thankful that you have chosen to be with us today and hope that you'll be encouraged by your time here. And so uh, that little phrase from that video just do something I saw a few years ago stuck with me and I thought it fit well with what we're gonna think about here today you, we all have been there right we've all been in that situation where we have these great plans great ideals great hopes and yet the reality of life sets in and it's not long before we are frustrated maybe crying on the floor saying someone do something please because someone needs to change the current situation and yet And especially this week, we celebrate that God in heaven, as he looked down and heard our desperate cry for someone to do something, God responded. God didn't turn off the lights and pretend he didn't see, God engaged. And so we celebrate this week God's response to the chaotic world in which you and I live. To the brokenness that we oftentimes wrestle with inside of ourselves, to the brokenness that we see in the world around us, we um, give thanks to God that he did something for us. To the violence and harm that sometimes we can inflict upon one another in this world, sometimes accidentally, oftentimes intentionally, God did something. To the grief and despair that we feel every time that we are faced with the inevitability of our own death or the pain of saying goodbye to someone that we love, God did something. To the ever-present frustration of not being able to to be what we wish we really wanted to be on the inside, what our heart's desire would be, God did something. And so to this chaotic world, he entered, drawing us near to himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He drew near to us for the purpose of identifying with us and, and sympathizing with us and understanding us but he wants to draw us back to himself uh, in what he came to do for us here. Now, he had every reason to turn away, to turn, again, to turn off the lights and say, you know what, you guys are a mess, you created the mess, uh, so just deal with the mess. But instead of just walking away from the mess, he entered into the mess, and, and we are thankful, and so we celebrate this Christmas season that he did that for us. And so we have been looking this, the, this month at the theme of, uh, of digging Christmas. And we have been kind of trying to dig into the story of Christmas, not just at a surface level where many of us know the story, but, but kind of doing what Luke begins his version of the Christmas story with is by saying, I'm telling you this story for a purpose. And I want you to know where I'm coming from as I write this story. And so in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, he says these words, To us, when he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first. We're eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So where's Luke saying he's getting this information? He's trying to help us dig down and say, you know what, this isn't just rumor. This is stuff that's coming from research and from witnesses. He goes on to say, with this in mind, since I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And so we have been spending this month kind of trying to build confidence in the story, not just of Christmas, but the story of Christ, the story of the Bible, and just like, where does my confidence in this story come from? And so we've tried to answer some, we started the first week with some basic questions. The most basic question of all is, is Jesus real? Is Jesus really a guy? And you'll find some people in the world who will, who will argue that he never really existed. And yet, if you were here with us a few weeks ago, or you can go back and look on the, on the website, I think those sermons are posted there, we answered the question that not just just biblically, but historically, there's evidence of people talking about the person of Jesus existing, and so we kind of said, well, yeah, check, he, he existed, he was real, but that we looked at the second week, well, if he was real, then, is the story that we have today, which claims some pretty audacious things, right, that Jesus, he was not only a guy, but he performed all these miracles, that he claimed to be God, and lots of different things, that he died and he rose again, pretty audacious claims, is that story real, Or maybe, as some people claim, that over the centuries that people kind of added to the the real person, the real life of Jesus, and made him into this bigger-than-life figure. And so we took a look back in history again to say, you know what, you can go back and not within the first centuries do you find this belief that Jesus lived and died and rose again and did all these miracles and was this incredible being. But just within the first years, the first decade or two, you can find not only in Jerusalem, where in Palestine, where Jesus lived and all these witnesses would have seen and been able to, to stamp out the story if it wasn't true, but even into Rome, 2,400 miles away by road, that all over the Roman Empire, Early on, the first few decades of after Christ, you find that this, this story has spread of a, of a Jesus who was incredible, but yet was crucified, but then rose again. And so the story that you and I read today is not made up, not been added to over the centuries. It's the same story that started early and has been consistent throughout the decades and centuries And so last week, we added to that, then if if this is a real story then, how does this apply to people who live thousands of years later and thousands of miles away? And how does this apply to us? Well, we looked at the humanity of Jesus and just drew out the conclusion that Jesus came so that he could sympathize with us and that we have a God who, when we pray to him, when we cry out for help to him, he understands what it's like to be tempted. He understands the struggles of being a human being. And so he sympathizes with us and that draws us to him. And so... Today, we're going to add a few more uh, things to that, but um, I, I think maybe I'll illustrate it this way. Maybe you're at one of those households that this week on Tuesday morning or whenever presents are open, there's going to be Legos that are opened up. Maybe maybe you've aged out of that, but you should go back to that because Legos are always fun and always relevant. And so, uh, but if you open a box of Legos and you just pull out a, a Lego and that piece by itself is is a nice piece. It's well, ma- well made. It's it's. it's You've paid good money for it. It's a good piece, but it doesn't represent the whole. But as you begin to put all the pieces together, you have this much bigger whole. And, and when I think about why do I have confidence in the story of Christ and the story of the Bible, um, it's not just one thing. It's not just one piece. It's all of the other pieces that kind of come together and that each one kind of builds on the others, and it, it gives you this this sense of confidence to say, you know what, man, when Jesus invites me to follow him, to trust him, to obey him, I'm doing that with good confidence because I can trust what I'm reading and what I'm hearing. Uh, that's a very old text. Um, and so the, that analogy, I want to go through something with you. Um, fingerprints: Some of you like to watch um, those detective shows, or those police shows where they're investigating who did it, who done it and how they did it and trying to get the, get the bad guy by the end of the show. And there are dozens of those shows on TV, and, and we all probably get drawn into those, because we like that. We like a mystery where we use the evidence to be able to solve uh, the crime. And I think the same thing is true. If I was to add to um, the list of things that we've started these first few weeks, I'm gonna give you a bunch of them here really fast, okay? I'm gonna try to go through them like in five minutes, which to your time is like 10 minutes. To me, it's gonna seem like five minutes, okay? So just realize the perspective's different where we're, depending on where we're saying. But I, I wanna talk about fingerprints, right? Because one of the evidences that people will sometimes use to solve a crime is fingerprints. And so one of the things I think as you begin to look, where does confidence in the story of Jesus come from I think there's not literal fingerprints, but there are the fingerprints of something different about the story of the Bible, about the Bible itself that we have that I think lends us to say, hey, as I begin to put all of these fingerprints together that, man, there's something at work here that's just different than what we normally see in this world. And so let me... put them up here. I'm going to put nine of them up here, and we'll finish with the tenth one here in a second. But look at this list of things with me, okay? I'm going to very quickly go. This is not my list originally. Um, This is a guy by the name of Pastor Don Stewart. He wrote a book called 10 Reasons to Trust the Bible, and there's others we could add to this. But I really like the way he kind of summarized this and gave us a good talking uh, point here um, for our five to ten minute conversation here. And so uh, he said this. These are some of the things that he, the Lego pieces, that, that as you put them together, they build a confidence, a foundation for you to trust the Bible and trust the story of Christ in it. The first thing that he mentions the first little piece that he would add to that is this the intellectual faith that the Bible offers us and the Bible never comes to us and says, you know what, you just got to believe me. I know you can't prove any of this stuff, but just, just trust me. It never comes from that perspective. The Bible writers are always coming from the perspective of, look, here's what happened. Go talk to these people. Some of these people are still alive. Go talk. Investigate this. Check this out. It's always inviting thought and reason and investigation. It's never afraid of that. And so it's always inviting you. Even Luke, as he wrote those words we wrote a few, read a few moments ago, he is inviting you to do what he has done. Look, I have talked to the eyewitnesses. I haven't Investigated this stuff, and you're invited to do the same thing with me so that you can have confidence too and so the faith the, the, the Bible never comes and says hey it's just this just appeared and don't question it don't ask it, it invites you to question it invites you to investigate the, the bible survival is is another piece of that um, that uh, that's fingerprints the fact that you have a Bible today is an incredible statement of of providence. I think because the Bible didn't just appear to us in a big book in 150, 200 AD, the Bible is a compilation of writings that have been developed over 3,500 years, 1,500 years, somewhere more there. It's been developed for a long time of history, of world history, of a lot of events, of changing ebbs and flows, of governments that came and went, and, and things, good things and bad things that happened to God's people. And yet through all of those things, both Old Testament and New Testament, you have a document that you read today that is well attested for, it, it, you can go back in so many different documents, so many different ways to prove that what you're reading today is the same thing that was written originally through much diligence of, of men and women who gave themselves to the task of making sure a text was preserved and protected. And the reason, even the, as an example, the reason that you have an English Bible to read today and not a Latin Bible was because men and women were willing to risk their life and ultimately die to present that to you. And so the Bible has been presented and protected, I think, in God's providence. And again, that's doesn't, doesn't prove everything, but it's just a piece that says, "Man, this this is a document that's ancient, but it's been preserved and protected so well." How about this number three? The historical precision. Uh, we looked at this a few weeks ago when we talked about archaeology. That as you begin to investigate, especially if you take like Luke's gospel as an example and, and look at the names and the dates and the places and the people. Um, what you find is that and over and over again, Luke proves to be right. Uh, and people question him and say, does this governor really exist? Or did this time, did this thing happen? And over and over, as we dig in the dirt, uh, we find more and more precision that Luke was right in what he was saying. Now, again, that doesn't prove the big story, but again, it's just a piece. It adds to our confidence in it. How about this? The scientific responsibility that when you read your Old Testament, it reads like a book of uh, people who, who live in a world like we do. It talks about the earth being a, sophie- a, sphere, a, sphere, a sphere, whatever it is us round is what I'm trying to say. It, it talks about that. It, it talks about the constellations and so many things in nature that that it interacts with that that it, it disrespects that from a, from even a modern perspective in many ways. The ability to predict the future. Uh, we've invited you um, this month to read to the book of Luke, a chapter a day. And if you did that, you read Luke 21 this week. And at the beginning of Luke 21, Jesus... Um, Walks by the temple, which in their day and time in the first century was a magnificent structure. Right? It was. It was their. It was their. Their building. Right? If, if, if I would make the comparison to say, before 9/11 happened, the twin towers in New York City, those were like structures. You think, man, what's what's America? Right? Those are those. Those are landmarks that mark us as a people. And um, for so many years, they stood that way. And yet, the temple was that way in Jewish culture. And so, it was big. It was powerful it was represented the Jewish people their faith and so many things in the beginning of Luke 21 Luke Jesus makes a comment that says hey um there's a day coming when no stone's going to be left of this temple. This thing is gone. It's going to be wiped away. And to their minds, it would be like if I was to take you back to um, July of 2001 and say, hey, someday these towers are going to fall. You would say, no way. There's no way that could happen. And that's what the, Jews, that's what the disciples responded with. Well, how is that going to happen and when, more importantly, because I don't want to be here when this thing comes tumbling down. And Jesus begins to give them instructions in those first few verses after that, talking about an event that will eventually happen in AD 70 when the Jews will rebel against Rome the Romans will bring all of their might and power, and they're going to completely destroy Jerusalem, they're going to burn the city, they're going to destroy the temple, they're going to kill thousands of Jews in the course of doing that. Um, But the cool thing, not the cool thing, the ironic thing is, because Jesus had said these words 30, 40 years before, the Christians were paying attention to the signs he begins to list at the beginning of that chapter, at least, and there weren't very many Christians that died in that siege because they paid attention, because Jesus' ability to even say something like that. And there are other examples we could look for, but Again, the ability to to see into the future and predict things that came true how about the honesty of scripture uh, you can look at that uh, the honesty of scripture if you and i were writing an autobiography of ourselves we would probably tend to kind of smooth over some of the rougher spots of your life saying hey here's the really good things i did but there was this time i was really a jerk to my dog and we're not going to talk much about that because that was an embarrassing time in my life and i don't want to talk about that all right? but that's not what you find in the bible right the bible is very very honest about the flaws of its heroes, all right? Start with the first one, Adam and Eve, uh, Moses, David, every person you find you read a story in the scripture there's not very many people who have a pretty clean record they've all got marks they've got things that they fell into they were uh and bible is honest about that so if you were making up a document if you were making up a story along the way you would certainly gloss over those things and highlight the better parts of your life not highlight the really bad parts of your life how about the change in many lives we can just use an example of that the Apostle Paul, Paul before was an up-and-coming Jewish leader who was an up-and-coming Jewish leader, would have had wealth, position, power, prestige. He could have had everything. People would have looked at him. They would have listened to him. They would have thought well of him and spoke well of him. But for some reason, his life did a complete 180 one day, and he, instead of leaving this upward trend from the world's perspective of everything he's moving to, he instead finds himself serving the Jesus that he once persecuted he he finds himself being persecuted, uh, whereas once he was the persecutor. And so he spends the rest of his life on the run, being ridiculed, beaten, shipwrecked, talked against, slandered, all these bad things happened to him for no gain, because he went from up from the world standards again, prestige power, to being the most, (laughs) least thought of person in the world by a lot of the the non-Christian people around him. And so Changes like that. How do you explain those kinds of things? Something dramatic happened in the first century. And finally, it's unique design. Again, the unique design of the Bible. 66 books written. It's more like a library than it is a book, right? And so if you go to your Bible, if you were to go to a library and pick out one individual book, that's what you're doing with it. 66 unique books written by 40 different people, written over 1,500 years. They wouldn't have known each other. They lived in different places, different times, books, different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. They... We're very different. And if I was to take 40 of us and even put us in a room and say, you know what, we're going to write a story, here's a general theme, and you go off over there, and you go off over there, and you go off over there, and you write your little part of the story and come back, there's not going to be a continuity of that story because we're just, there's not something that's bringing us together. And yet you read the Bible from beginning to end, and it's talking about controversial things that every culture had different views on, and yet from beginning to end, it maintains this this consistency of thoughts, and and on and on it goes. And so, finally, it it works in our lives, the practical nature of it, There was a quote I was too long to read today, but it just talked about the idea, if you were to take even the Sermon on the Mount, the Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus, his longest sermon that he taught, if you were just to take that text and commit for 30, 60 days just to obey it, to do everything it said to live faithfully to that text, it talked about how from a psychological perspective and a relational perspective and a life perspective, how your life would be so much better because it's going to deal with things like relationships, keeping short records, forgiving people quickly, slow to anger, all those kind of things that Jesus talks about that when we do them, it just makes life better. Even our view of ourself, uh, maybe we have a low view of ourselves, and it builds us up and makes us feel valuable, but it also reminds us that I'm not all that and I need to have some humility in my life and it, it's got a good balance about how we see uh, our, ourselves. Um, stress and worry, anxiety, if I was to obey what Jesus tells me there, I'm going to find an outlet for those kinds of things, a purpose in life that's bigger than just me and so on and on it could go. And so all of those things are just like little pieces. None of them prove or or completely silence all doubts. But when you begin to add them together, it creates this thing that I think, man, you look back in history, there's not many books, not many accounts, not many things like that. And so... Those things are good, and those are good pieces of evidence, and we could probably spend a sermon doing each one of them. That was five minutes, right? That was, okay, it felt like 15 to you. And I. But anyway, that was, I want to share that with you because I want to finish with one last thing, though. There's one last thing I would add to this, that, that those are all great things. Those are wonderful things that give us confidence in the Bible. But there is one thing that is the best part. And, it, and without it, if you were to take this last part out, the rest of it would be a nice trivia thing to know, but it wouldn't be life-changing The thing that makes it life-changing is finally it's the person of Jesus Christ. It's the person of Christ. And it's his story that you find in the Old Testament that he is being prepared for and God is preparing the world for him. And in the Gospels, you find him arriving and, and his life and who he was and what he did. And the book of Acts and the letters are all about, okay, Jesus came and he's gone back to heaven. Now, how do we live in light of his coming and, and what he's come to do for us? And finally, it, f- it with, finishes with the book of Revelation with, okay, he's come, he's coming again. So, so live faithful, be true to him, be ready for him. And, and so that whole person of jesus christ thing is is the thing where i want to finish this and kind of bring this back around to more of a a christmas feel to it okay um because i want to say this you and i live in a world again if you were to read the bible and take jesus out of it it's not a bad read you're going to learn some things not bad but again you put jesus into it and what it takes you to is not just the fingerprints of god but jesus shows you the motives of god's actions why did God do it? Not just the what's, not just that God wrote a book here. Or he took his people there. But why did he do it? Because Jesus answers and shows us the heart of God in so many ways. It points us to the motives of God's actions. And so I want to ask you the question here. Why did he come? Uh, this big, long story, this big, long book. But why? Why is it here? Why do we have the story of Jesus? Why is that part necessary for Jesus to be here? Why God being born into a poor family in the middle of nowhere, in Nowhereville, of the world of his day? Why 30 years of living life in obscurity? Why the three years of ministry and, and teaching? Why investing in 12 disciples? And ultimately, why the rejection? Why the cross? And why the resurrection? Why is that so important in light of Jesus coming? And I would simply summarize it with this statement that if you were to just take one thing away from you when we're here today, I hope it would be this. That the God who gets us, now it goes back to last week, that who gets us, he understands us. In Jesus, in the incarnation, in Christmas, he understands what it's like to be a human being. So I can't ever say to Jesus, well, Jesus, you just wouldn't understand. Yes, he does. He gets it. He understands all of our hurts and our struggles. But the God who gets us, not only gets us, he not only understands us and sympathizes with us, but he gave us all. He gave everything he had to get us back. And so he wanted us back. He wanted a relationship with us. He wanted to step into the mess and say, look, the world is a mess. It is chaos. But let me bring you back to myself and begin to restore the things that have been so messed up by sin and chaos of the world. And so how did he have to do that? In order to draw us back, in order to get us back, he had to give. He couldn't just speak, right? Because if Jesus would have just come and spoke nice words he would have been probably well thought of. People would have remembered some of what he said, but it wouldn't have been life-changing. Because if he was just to come and say, hey, I know the world's a mess, but I just want you to know you're forgiven, that's a nice statement. And Jesus did that. As you read his story, you find many examples of when Jesus speaks to a person and says, hey, look, your sins are forgiven. And you remember what happens when he did that? No one believed him. They questioned that. It's like, who are you? Who in the world are you to be able to say to me, my sins are forgiven? Because only one person can forgive me, and that's God, and, and I don't think you're him. And so that's part of the reason they crucified him. They just didn't like his claims to be able to, to forgive sin like he did. And so no one would have believed him if he would have come uh, and just spoke and just been about, about all about proclamation. And so his words would have been fine, but they probably wouldn't have lasted past that first generation of people who knew him because they knew him, they had a relationship with him, they saw him, but beyond that, if you didn't see him, if you didn't know him, if you didn't see the miracles, then that loses evidence, it loses momentum very quickly. And so Jesus needed to do something that would not only last and be remembered, but he needed to do something that would communicate the importance of us the the thoughts and the the perspective of God. And so that's where Jesus enters this picture. And so no one would have believed him, but Jesus, here's the thing I want you to take away from this, that Jesus had to come to die. That he couldn't just come and say, hey, it's forgiven, don't worry about it. Something much more serious was going on. And that's what I want you to see in in some words in Acts chapter three, um, where Peter, one of those disciples, we talked about those life change examples, Peter's one of those people. He was a guy who lived in fear and pride, got a running mouth all the time and getting himself in trouble all the time. But yet after the resurrection, his life changes completely. And he becomes this fearless, fearless proclaimer. And just a few months after Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, the same town, the same people he's talking to, the same people who were part of, hey, let's just crucify that guy, Peter has a chance to preach about Jesus to them. And this is part of that sermon. In verse 12, it's in Acts 3.12, it says, when Peter saw this, again, he's just, he and John have just been able to perform a miracle and God has done this crazy, incredible thing by making this man unable to walk, rise and walk. And the crowd draws around because they thought this is a lot like that Jesus guy again. And so a crowd gathers to look. And so Peter sees it and he says to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own hands, our own power or godliness that we made this man walk? This isn't us, in other words. But in the end of verse 13, he begins to, to direct their thoughts. Again, remember this is the same group of people who just a few months before had been a part of, of crucifying Jesus. And he says this, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. So again, this is a fulfillment of a long thing that God's been doing in history. So you handed him over to be killed. And you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. So again, where's he taking them? It's like, look, God put Jesus before you. And Pilate, this Roman pagan governor, looked at Jesus and said, this man's not guilty. He does not deserve to die. So in order to get him off, I'm going to present you this convicted murderer named Barabbas who's in my prison cell. And so I'll put Barabbas before him and, and, and compare him to Jesus. And surely they'll choose Jesus because Barabbas is a terrible guy remember who the crowd chose. We don't want Jesus, we want Barabbas. Give us the criminal, give us the murderer, let him go free, we want Jesus dead. And so their complete anger at Jesus, their disowning of Jesus was complete even before a pagan king. And it goes on to say this, and this is the phrase that I hope maybe resonates deeply with us, that you disown the holy and righteous one. What a terrible thing to say about your God, right? That God came to you in the flesh and you disowned him, and you asked that a murderer be released to you. And this is the phrase, you killed the author of life. Wow, that's not, probably not good job security. <laughs> if you go before a crowd and say, hey, you know what? God sent his son to you, and you killed him. But not only did you kill him, you killed the author of life. What a bold statement that is. You and I are sitting in this room, and life is happening inside of you right now, even though you don't realize it, right? You're, 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 you're just sitting here listening, and and. But what's going on inside of you as you do? Right? Life is happening. These cells are just doing their thing, and you have no idea. You're breathing. Your brain is functioning. Your eyes are kind of working. And you're, 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 you're here, and, and you're engaged. And your body is doing all these things on the inside. It's digesting breakfast. It's doing all these things that you're not thinking about because life isn't something that you created. Life is something that's been given to you. And it's happening inside of you as you sit here right now. And so what's Peter saying to them? Look, that someone gave life to you. Life is not yours. Life is a gift that has been given to you. And you killed the one who gave you life. So again, this this isn't just about us and Jesus. I appreciate Peter's perspective because he takes it bigger than that. The one who made you, the one who created you, the one who gave the very life and the oxygen in your lungs, the one who gave you life, you killed him. But God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this again it goes back to that whole invitation to investigate again but note that phrase that god is the author of life of your life of my life and as we're just trying to make it through our days figuring life out figuring both from a scientific and, and relational and spiritual perspective we're trying to figure life out but it just happens your body does its thing no matter what you think or say or wants and right now you sit here so many incredible things are happening because life is happening in you and around you. And so when you dishonor the source of life, who is that? That's God. They dishonored, they rejected, they disowned the author of life. And so this isn't about just a legal transaction that God's a judge and, and we broke the law. And so there is part of that in, in, in Christ's story. But I think this takes it more personal. That God is creator, God is the author of life, gave life to these people. And when... God showed up in the flesh in Jesus. What was their decision? Their decision was, we don't want you. We want you gone. We want to do life ourselves. We want to make the rules. We want to make this about us. And so they rejected him and they killed him. And what would you call if I I was invited into your home and and you put a meal before me and you gave me your very best and and I walked to the table and I just cleared the table with my hand saying this is disgusting and terrible and you're a terrible host and and, and I, I don't want you here anymore. What would you think of me? You think me, I'm a teenager? No, you think me, you're very rude. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, teenagers. I love you guys. And so you would think, oh, I'm sorry. I love you guys. I love you guys. I'm kidding. Um, it's just repressed anxiety from the week building out here. But, but you would think what? What a rude person to reject an offer of life and gift like that. What a, what a terrible thing to, to be and to do. And we all do it. And Peter's statement isn't just to that crowd. I think it applies to all of us when we think, what is my standing before God? Why did Jesus have to come? Because just like they have, I have, you have, we have stood before God, the author of life, and we have said to him, I don't want your way. I want it my way. So I'm going to push you away. I'm going to do with this gift that you have given me whatever I want. I don't care about what you say. The Bible summarizes that with the little word sin, but I appreciate this perspective because I think it has a fresh look at it, that God gives a gift of life and he loves it and he wants to nurture it and he wants to, to live in harmony with it, but, but the creation rejects him pushes him away. And God has every right in the world to turn off the lights, ignore it, say, look, fine, I gave you life. You rebelled and walked away. I don't need you anymore. I, I've got heaven. I've got angels who worship me. I don't need you, but I love you. And so out of his love for us, he demonstrates love, right? Because love can be spoken and love should be spoken frequently, but love that is not demonstrated doesn't mean much if it's just spoken. Love has to be demonstrated. And so Christ comes and demonstrates God's love for us in Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. It says this, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this that while we were still sinners, while we were still standing before God with our fence, fists clenched, saying, I don't want your way, I don't want you, I want to do it my way, while we were still in that posture, Christ died for us. And that's good news. And so that's what makes Christmas such a special thing, that the God who had been rejected, that the God who had given us all life and who had been rejected and spurned in so many ways, enters into life to say, you know what, I, I still love you. I love you and I'm gonna demonstrate my love for you. And some of you are never gonna accept this. Some of you are gonna reject it all the days of your life, but I'm still going to demonstrate my love for you in a way that won't be forgotten in a generation, but in a way that will be remembered for every generation to follow through the cross. And so God demonstrated for his love for us and grace to us. I think it was Andy Stanley who said this next phrase. I appreciate it. it says, he demonstrated he was for us before we had an opportunity to decide if we were for him. And that's really godly love, right? Because I don't know how you're going to respond, but I'm going to demonstrate my love for you. I'm going to die for you. And you may respond to that, you may not, but I'm going to demonstrate my love regardless. He demonstrated that he was for us before we had an opportunity to decide, even if we were for him. And so the love was there. And so I will finish this by, by talking, about, talking about one of my favorite stories this week. Um, this was, if, if you're a teacher, you probably got some gifts this week, right? Someone, some little kid brought you a, a slimy apple or something, something really cool that, that was given a gift out of love, right? You get gifts as a teacher and, and different things because kids are going home, it's Christmas time, and, and they give gifts to all kinds of things, maybe jewelry or, or, or cards, nice notes, something like that. They oftentimes give a gift. I love the story of a little girl that was in the state of Washington and this teacher by the name of Rachel Pratt, um, that she was used to receiving chocolates and notes and some jewelry sometimes, but she received a gift she had never received. She teaches in a school that is 100% um, dependent on free and reduced lunch, so it's a rather poor community. So the kids didn't have a lot to come and bring gifts to her, and yet she would oftentimes receive all kinds of different gifts but this week she received a gift that was unique. Uh, It was a gift that when the kids got to to school every day, they're given breakfast. And one of the things that they were given was Lucky Charms, which are magically delicious, right? And so um, they were given, but what's the best part of Lucky Charms if you eat them? Is it the the cereal? No, it's like cardboard. It's awful. But what does it make that makes it magically delicious? It's the marshmallows, right? That's what makes the cereal good. So this little girl had nothing to give her teacher, but she went through and she picked out all of her marshmallows, put them in a bag and presented them to her teacher to say, I can't give you much more, but I want you to know that the best thing I had to give you today, I'm giving it to you. And so you look at that and you think, and that story kind of went everywhere and it was a big deal because what a special thing for someone to give their very best to show appreciation and thanks to someone else, right? And that's what God has done for us, except he had something better than marshmallows, right? Although the marshmallows are pretty cool. And so, uh, but he had so so much more than marshmallows. He had his only son to give. And he looked around and said, what's the most precious thing I can give to humanity to say, I love you? And it was simply his son. And so he gave us his son to demonstrate his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, fists clenched before God in rebellion to him. He died for us. And so as you think about Christmas this week, I hope that you will think from the perspective of of a God who has given grace generously and freely and lovingly to you because he cares about you. And whether you respond to that or not, he wants to demonstrate that through what Jesus did for you on the cross. I love how that text finishes in Acts chapter three, verses 19 and 20. Peter invites them, says, look, that's what happened, right? You crucified the author of life. You rejected him. But that's not the end of the story. and He invites them to repent then, turn to God so that your sins might be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. And so that's my invitation to you today. Um, I catch myself so oftentimes just with that rebellious spirit towards God and have to fight and battle that. But it's the path of repentance that leads us back to God. It's the path of repentance that leads us to thankfulness for what he has done. It's the path of repentance that leads us to change.